Hello and welcome to Fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Nakrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. So this is the final episode of the series and I'm well and truly going out with a bang, given I'm joined by two of my very favourite podcasters for a chat about what it's like to be an American fan of football, host of the Arsenal Vision podcast, Elliot Smith, and contributor and host of the Blue Room podcast, Rob Vera. Elliot and Rob, how are you? Good, thanks. Nice to talk to you. You too. You too. Long time listener, first time caller. I don't, I don't think that's right, but you know, you know what I mean. Um, no, thanks, guys. Really appreciate both being on. Yeah, so I wanted to do this for a while, as I said, uh, a podcast focusing on US football fandom. And uh, it's become especially pertin- pertinent given the Fure around and fallout off the Super League. I should say we're recording about a week or so after the Super League collapse. I think actually exactly a week, wasn't it? it was like, we're recording on a Tuesday, Tuesday 27th. It only feels it only feels like a year ago at this point. <laughs> Super League, we hardly knew you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the forty-eight hour love affair that we all enjoyed exactly a week ago. Yeah, all done and dusted, but obviously ramifications exist. But if, I, I feel it, it actually fits in really, really well with the discussion we're going to have as well. So I'm glad you both, got, you guys, are both on to have it. As I said, listen to you both regularly on your respective podcast. Big fan. Before we do so, just want to check in with where, where you guys are. So Elliot, you're. You're speaking to us from Minneapolis in Minnesota. Rob, you're in Oklahoma City in Oklahoma. I think that's right. And I'm curious yes. to whether either of you have ever been to each other's hometowns. So, Rob, start with you. Any trips ever to Minneapolis? Oh, yeah. Um, I my The nature of my job, at least before uh, you know Armageddon hit us over <laughs> the last year, was uh, uh, in nature. I've I, I, I traveled quite a bit to different coll- colleges and universities around mm-hmm. the U.S. And so uh, tons of tons of higher ed institutions in, in Minneapolis. And so I've been there several times. Actually, Minneapolis has always been one of my favorite cities. Uh, I'm a music guy. I'm a record guy. There's good record stores there. Um, just generally like the culture uh, up there in Minneapolis. But uh, even with the cold, uh, it doesn't bother me too much. It's a great city. But yeah, I've been there. Yeah, Rob. Um, sorry, not Rob. Elliot, any trips mm-hmm. to uh, Oklahoma? Yeah, I. Uh, so I'm originally from the New York area. And uh, when I was in law school, I took two weeks uh, off going to law school, as you do, to drive cross country. And it was a blast. And one of our favorite stops along the way was Oklahoma City. Uh, just a fantastic time. All stories redacted. But yeah, excellent <laughs> time. Enjoyed it. Uh, really fun place. Only time I've been there, but would, would have no objection to going back. Hey, Sasha, and I think I remember reading a story about a cross-country trip because they almost always inter- they always go through Oklahoma City because I-40, which is one of the major interstate highways in America, you know, just cuts right through the center of the country in Oklahoma mm-hmm. City. And one of the really good stories about someone taking one of those cross-country trips was Macaulay Culkin uh, of Home Alone fame, who got busted <laughs> in Oklahoma City with a load of drugs in his car on one of his cross-country trips and it was in Oklahoma City so uh you know there's there's some real Hollywood star power for you yeah, straight from say. Oklahoma City you guys are welcome for that story is that Oklahoma City's biggest claim to fame that's that's where McCauley got <laughs> no was god let's let's cer- let's certainly hope not I, <laughs> hey you know honestly when it, I for years it was Kevin Durant what Russell Westbrook uh those were uh those were the the two kind of sporting wise uh, claims to fame there but uh no that's just one of the more weird random stories about macaulay culkin and his exploits crossing america <laughs> well what the heck i'll chime in with a story then so while i was driving uh out of oklahoma on the way back the round trip um i got pulled over for speeding by a police officer and 
how police officers pull you over all over the different parts of America can be different. But apparently there at that time, the policy was the driver gets out of the car and goes and sits in the police car. Yeah. Uh, I had not been exposed to that, but that is a particularly intimidating thing to happen if you've not had that happen to you before. And the passenger in my car was, um, how shall I say this, high as a kite. Uh, now, in the early 2000s in the United States, the situation with marijuana is not as it is now. Uh, right. You know, class A, banned substance, you know, the whole nine yards, not a good situation. So he sees me get taken out of the car and brought into the police cruiser and assumes that our life is over. Forget law school. We are now spending our life in a Oklahoma prison. Um, but actually... Uh, Oklahoma had just won a national title in college football. Uh, we had a nice chat about that with the police officer I did at the time. My sports fandom saving me. He said, you know, for a northerner, you seem like a pretty good guy. So you just slow it down and be safe. I got back into my car. My friend was crying and may have wet himself, but we continued on our journey. Blimey. Uh, Sports saved your life or professional life? Certainly certainly seemed to have, yes. (laughs) Those were glory days. (laughs) Amazing. Excellent. Well, my four trips to the US, I'll chime in. I went to Orlando in 95 for the classic British holiday to Disney World and uh, Universal Studios. Dallas in 2014. 14 for a for a press trip went to see the cowboys play sky sports oh, wow. sorted it out for a group of journalists and that was excellent new york in 2014 family trip fantastic brilliant and then la and san francisco for another family trip in 2019 love san francisco didn't really take to la gotta be honest i think it might be because we stayed in hollywood which is fucking nuts um yeah I'm from da- I'm from Dallas originally. Oh, really? And the fact that you've been to twenty in twenty fourteen, so you went to the new I still say the new Cowboys Stadium, though it's the like AT Stadium, yeah. The massive AT T Stadium, yeah, yeah. Everyone there calls it Jerry World or <laughs> The, De- the Death Star, which is my personal <laughs> yeah. favorite, because when you're flying on a plane into Dallas, it just it looks like uh, it looks like something from a Star Wars movie. Yeah. It's the biggest stadium I've ever seen in my life. I probably will ever see in my entire life. It is enormous. Yeah, we went to see the opening game of that season as part of this press trip. Sky Sports took out a load of British journalists. Like they sort of uh, all expenses paid trip. And in return, we had to write about the Cowboys because um, oh. it was uh, to promote Sky's coverage of NFL games in England. That would happen that uh. sort of that autumn. So it's kind of a tie in. And yeah, we met Jerry Cowboy, Jones. The Cowboys, the Cowboys have prepared me for Everton disappointment over the last <laughs> you know, 16 years or 16, 17 years. So, yeah. Yeah, I got, I'm not an NFL fan. I've got to be honest. I don't know why they asked me, but I took, I, I grabbed it with both hands and sure. as I learned out there that the Cowboys, yeah, a team that seemed to um, uh, over promise and under deliver. I don't know if that's still the case, but it seemed to be when I was out there. But yeah, we met Jerry Jones. We spent a bit of time with him. He was an uh, interesting guy. But so, yeah, I'll leave it yeah. there. uh, right let's get into this then um and yeah let's link it to the super league then so one of the reoccurring themes of those as i said those crazy 48 hours we had recently was um you know when this most stupid and bungled of ideas came and went was that it was going to be europe's version of the nfl close shop uh league with the best best of the best uh play each other brand values heightened to their absolute peak um now some obvious flaws in that argument namely that the esl unlike the nfl wouldn't have key checks and balances such as salary caps and draft systems but it definitely felt like there was some truth in that sense and that was what the 12 were going for and in theory then it should and would appeal strongly to us fans um you're both big nfl fans as i know from from listening to you guys regularly and you both made p- clear in your respective podcasts as well as on social media that you were dead against the super league and listening to the arsenal vision episode you did straight after the super league was announced elliot you spoke about why you didn't want uh, european football to become nfl like uh, and you came up with this analogy about not wanting to eat mcdonald's in paris which I thought was really interesting. Um, do you That's want to a sort of, great analogy. I love yeah. that. Do you want to sort of speak about that and why, from a US perspective, 
um, you didn't want or you never want English football to follow sort of the NFL model. And what it is, what's so unique about European football that made you sort of fall in love with the sport in the first place? Sure. I mean, from the one standpoint, it is sport and I love sport. And so I, I love Premier League football, Champions League football, because it's just more sport. But on the other hand, it is the culture of the game, the ways in which it's different from what I grew up around that attracted me to it and led to me developing the kind of passionate support for it that I have. If I want more American sport, America's got no shortage of it. I've got plenty of options for that. I don't want that. And that's expressly why I have evolved into being an Arsenal fan first and foremost and everything else fading into the distant background. Because for me, the culture of European football and of Premier League football is more compelling. It is more diverse. Uh, it has more storylines that I can connect to. And just the passion of the way that the passion it evokes in the supporters is different. I mean, I think that maybe some of the conversation around a closed league saying, oh, well, it stops mattering. It doesn't matter if you win. Or oh, Look, NFL teams care if they win the Super Bowl. Major League Baseball teams care if they win the World Series, so on and so forth. It matters. But the sense of peril isn't there. The sense of, I don't want to say it's a true meritocracy because maybe we'll get in during this discussion later to whether there is any merit left in football as it currently exists because of the economics of it. But just the sense that you achieve the outcome that you've earned, whether that's uh, pros prosperity or the the opposite in the case of Arsenal currently. So I don't, I don't seek from my football fandom to reproduce what I've had accessible to me in America. I, I am drawn to something different. And I think the the sort of arrogance and stupidity of, of the owners in this case is that I'm sure they expected some fan outrage, but I think they believe that their fans would love it because it would mean prosperity and glory somehow for their fans. And what they've come to learn is that maybe naively and maybe having to ignore some, some obvious realities about modern football, I think football fans want their teams, their clubs to achieve prosperity through merit, through the competition with other clubs and not have it handed to them. This was what billionaires always want, a bailout, a way for Arsenal Football Club to get a rescue ladder out of mediocrity and into something special through no hard work or uh, merit of their own. And and I, I have no interest in that. And I think what they saw is that none of the fans, as far as I can tell, certainly none of the fans that I engage with had, had any real interest in it either. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that was one thing that was really striking for me is the fans, the fans of the six all sort of came together, didn't they? And um, mm -hmm. to show their objection to, and I think there's a sense that the f elite fans think in elite ways, but that is absolutely not the case. As a Liverpool fan myself, I absolutely want us, if we're going to do anything, I want us to earn it. I don't want it given to us. And it means more when, uh, to use that horrendous Liverpool phrase that makes me cringe. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't want to use it that. It only took 10 minutes and <laughs> you already exactly. have the means more. I yeah, knew it. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it means more for all of us, not just Liverpool yeah. fans. If you'd actually yeah, earn it through me. I, mean, I was hearing a Tottenham fan on the, on the radio say that the, that season, I think it was in 2010, when Peter Crouch scored that goal in that sort of Champions League playoff, it almost became to get Tottenham into the Champions League in, in the Premier League. I mean, that moment is one of his, his favourite all-time moments as a Spurs fan because it's the goal that got Tottenham into the Champions League when, when Crouch scored away at Man City at the, near the end of the 2009-10 season, I think it was. You know, those, that is one of his favourite moments as a Spurs fan. He hasn't got many, I guess, because they, they don't do particularly well. And you take away moments like that by having a closed shop league because, as, as Elliot is saying, there's no merit. There's no sense of having to achieve to get to the sort of high, high echelons of football. So, uh, no, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, Rob, what's your take on it? Well, obviously, an Everton fan, you weren't, you weren't invited to the party, but like the rest of us, you were sickened by it as well. Yeah, well, look, there's, I think it's important to, to note, and maybe this is un somewhat unique in a conversation with 
the three of us that I am part of the, the, the quote outsider group, whatever you want to call it. I, I mean, I, I think that I, I feel, I think the super league notion elicited certain reactions in me that are sort of multi-layered. But what I would say first and foremost is that a, we already have a system, at least, you know, I think that, and I probably advocate more for this point of view and I advocate more for fans, especially Everton fans, uh, to, to really kind of demand a little bit more. But I, I already feel like we have a system that from a financial and structural perspective already so greatly benefits these six clubs already. Uh, you know, you can love those clubs, but you've got to admit that you guys have some very built-in advantages. The structure has been built in such a way to have no wage caps, no, uh, you know, to use uh, really interesting coefficients and algorithms to essentially kind of cement places in, in the Premier League structure. In fact, I probably cynically looked at this Super League uh, proposal and thought to myself, is this just a conspiracy to make the proposed Champions League changes actually look more attractive in mm. comparison? Yeah, I yeah. thought it was quite a feat to be able to create a scenario where FIFA and UEFA look like the good guys. Like it really took some doing to make <laughs> that happen. And, it, and they somehow found a way yeah. to do it. But now here's the thing. I think, I think Elliot hits on something that's important. Um, growing up in Americans, you know, with that sort of American sport lens, I think sometimes there's an assumption about American supporters of the Premier League that we have this desire to Americanize everything that we begin to be fond of. And I would I would fundamentally disagree. I, I'm sure that may be the case for some. Uh, I certainly know some American uh, American soccer fans who <laughs> really like the idea of creating a more Americanized structure of you know like MLS does of conferences and playoffs and in these sorts of things that are more common to our, our structure here but to Elliot's point I, the, the whole idea of being attracted to something different and the way in which that difference that you encounter not only in consuming the sport, but in terms of your interactions with the cultural differences, the community-based uh, traditions and affections for a certain way in which a, a sport is is structured. I mean, those are the things that, that attracted me. It was because it was different, not because it was something that I wanted to be the same. So the Super League felt, uh, it, it's, it's, it felt like a clumsy attempt. Like I've, I've heard people say, well, they're trying to make it like the NFL. And what's weird for someone like me is that I do think think that there are some uh, things about the NFL that the Premier League and, and European football in general could adopt to promote greater equity in the structure, um, to protect itself and be more responsible financially. Like I think FFP is is like the Loch Ness monster. People have heard of it, but no one's ever really <laughs> seen it. And and I, and and so I do think that that there are some elements where the NFL has created the most uh, the richest, essentially the richest professional league in the world, and they've done so in a way that essentially dictates that no owner can spend more than anyone else on on their team and and it's created still a, a the ability to have traditional powers while also still having enough parity to keep every fan base really interested and so i think those things can be good but to create a close shop in the form of super league it, it was it was these owners who already have structural advantages 
who have mismanaged their finances so poorly that they now wanted to take it a step further and say, well, we already have everything we want, but we want more. Like I, I said on my podcast the other day, I think the, mis- the fundamental mistake so many of, of the fans of the Premier League and of European football have made is they thought to themselves, well, the, the richest owners of these clubs already get everything that they want. Surely they'll never ask for more. But guess what? They can ask for more. Yeah. It's amazing that there is no quenching the thirst of greed in certain circumstances. So in the case of the Super League, they were trying to create a structure where their their constant fiscal mismanagement of their own operations would no longer be penalized and would always be rewarded. And all that does, especially, and I think Gary Neville made this point, especially with the idea that they would compete in a closed league, make all of this extra money, and then still have the audacity to say, we still want to play in the Premier League with an even bigger advantage over all the 14 other clubs. It, it, it feels insulting, but I think what's so insulting is just how brazen and brash they were, as if everyone was going to think that this was just fine, when I would argue that that fans of the other 14 clubs are probably already somewhat frustrated with the inequalities that already exist, much less solidifying them in a structure structural way moving forward. So for me, I just, I, I found all of this to be wild hubris. Uh, I don't think it's over. I think that the tone of the apologies in quotes that you got from the clubs were very much like very much more a result of a poor PR rollout, public relations rollout than they were about truly being sorry. So I I, I think unless there are actual ramifications for this and actual, uh, an opportunity seized to actually implement some real, fundamental changes, uh, and I'm only semi-optimistic about that, uh, then I think we're going to be right back here in another year or in another six months. I I don't Mm. think this is going away. Yeah, I've got to say, I'm all for Liverpool getting a points deduction because I want us to finish (coughs) 10th now because I don't want us to be in Europe. So um, (laughs) I don't want us to be in the Europa League or that conference thing. So please take some points away from us. Let us drop down the table. Liverpool will probably win the league if they don't have to play in Europe next season. Everyone (laughs) will get healthy and they'll just be able to Exactly, that is very much my other reason for us wanting uh, wanting (laughs) us not to play in Europe. Um, Brilliant. I'm I'm really fascinated by the whole promotion relegation thing, the cultural differences there because... Having grown up in in the UK, it's just such an inherent part of our sport, sporting culture, not just in football, but also in cricket and rugby. The, the idea of teams going up and teams going down, you know, it's fundamental to this idea of smaller clubs having something to strive for. And the idea that if you're crap and poorly run, you get punished by dropping down the leagues. But obviously, it isn't something that happens in America. I mean, is there any appetite for it at all among US sports fans for, for that sort of system in any other sports? Coming to you, Elliot, on this in, in baseball, basketball or, or the NFL, or is it just something that... American cultures just just would never absorb. Certainly. <clears throat> Look, if you want to um, numb yourself into a, a stupor, you can just go on to ProRel MLS Twitter um, and and spend the rest of your life going down that oh rabbit God. hole. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not an MLS fan. That's just not something that interests me. You know, nothing against it. But there is a strong uh, promotion relegation culture developing within the fan base of MLS wanting that. It okay. won't happen. That's beside the point in the other sports no there's there's absolutely no call for it and and part of the problem you have is there is no pyramid right so who are you promoting and who where are you relegating someone to if you relegate someone out of the nfl there's no league for them to go play in there's no team have like to go an nfl out. one and an nfl two could you right it, it doesn't exist but and the, i think that problem, would that could that be created would there be any interest no. in teams dropping from one to two to promote from two to one no no it couldn't happen and and there's a lot of reasons i mean for, for one thing like you think about the, the money, and not just the money from the billionaires, but public money spent on these stadiums, right? What do you do suddenly if you know, you've raised taxes 
to pay for a stadium that has 80,000 seats in it, and that team gets relegated, and for an entire season, 20,000 people go, the stadium's a quarter full, there's no TV broadcast money going in anymore, this, you know, the, the vendors to the stadium aren't making money. You know, the, the thing about professional sports in America, these are huge industries for the cities in which they operate. When a professional sports team leaves a city, it takes a lot of money with it. Now, you could argue that there are positive benefits to them leaving the city, and that's more of a political argument than anything else. The other thing is, here's here's a reality that I think maybe a lot of football fans would argue with me about, but I'm just going to tell you this is where I stand on this issue. You cannot have promotion and relegation and also have spending caps. Those things are incompatible. Because if I want to spend $2 billion or $4 billion to buy an NFL team, I want to make sure that NFL team is always a strong asset, always plays in the NFL, always delivers revenue to me. Now, what if you say we're adding relegation to the NFL? I say, fine, I'm willing to spend enough to make sure I never get relegated. I can't have my team relegated out of the NFL. But they say to you, no, 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 you can't spend that much. You can only spend up to the cap. You have no way to protect yourself in a parity type league where everybody's spending is capped. Everybody would get sent down at some point. Think of the biggest clubs in the NFL, the teams you regard as the best. They have all been the worst at some point. So the Patriots would have been relegated at some point. The Green Bay Packers would have been relegated at some point. The Dallas Cowboys would have been relegated a lot lately. Like there's a there and and the problem you have with that is that is not something that billionaires want to sign up for. And I think it is one of the principal problems with American investment in in European football is simply to say, the only way we can keep ourselves out of that problem is by spending. The only way we can run these clubs successfully is at a loss. They don't want it to be a loss-making enterprise. But there's no way to compete in the current European football landscape without it being a loss-making enterprise. And so they said, well, let's just build a, a league where it can be a profitable enterprise. That's why they want the NFL model. Not because they want to eliminate competition. Not be, They want football to stop being a loss-making enterprise. And while I have no time for the Super League, and I have no time for the avarice of these owners, what I will say is that you cannot ignore the problem of a elite sports league where the only way to thrive long-term is to lose huge sums of money. Now, I realize to those of us just sitting here listening, what do we care if billionaires lose huge sums of money? If you want the sport to thrive, it has to get its hand around spending. It has, and FFP, while the idea was, oh, you'll only spend what you make, let's be clear about what FFP was. FFP was an effort to prevent the smaller clubs from catching the bigger clubs. The bigger clubs had bigger sponsorships, they had larger revenues, so they could outspend. And what you were saying to the smaller clubs is, even if you have the money to spend, you can't spend enough to catch up to us. So it was a caste system masquerading as spending controls. And that is not what's needed. But if football continues to operate as a loss-making enterprise, where the only people who can afford to own clubs and run them successfully are sports-washing nations or oligarchs or billionaires, then this problem will continue to present itself. So that probably, as an answer, uh, landed a long way from the bullseye of the target that you were aiming me at, but hopefully it, it hit a few of the issues that uh, you were trying to No, it did. It, did. <laughs> it was very good. It's a very full answer. That was good. Excellent. Right, <laughs> let's, let's talk about slightly happier things and get away from the Super League because it's a, a very grim topic. Let's talk origin stories, why you guys support the clubs you do. I'll stick with you on this, Elliot, actually, because I'm, I'm pretty aware, reasonably aware why you do, because you talked mm -hmm. about it on a, a fantastic episode you guys did. You should say on the Arsenal Vision that you do regularly with Tim Stillman, Clive Palmer, and um, what's Paul's surname? I don't know. Cassidy. Mm -hmm. Cassidy, of course. It's Paul, 
posing in my pants, isn't he? As you regularly, yeah, that's, that's the one, yeah. <laughs> as you regularly to but yeah, you four regularly did podcasts, and you did an episode on the day Arsene Wenger announced he was leaving Arsenal, the twentieth of April, twenty eighteen. So just a little over three years ago, and you told the story on that episode actually of how, of, of why you support Arsenal. So if, if I've got it right, you grew up in Chicago, you followed the Bulls during their sort of golden period in the nineties. Uh, so big uh, NBA fan, moved to London for work, and then you fell in love with football and specifically Arsenal. So I think I've got that right. So why was it Arsenal when you moved to London, not Chelsea, West Ham, or dare I say it, Tottenham? Yeah, fair enough. So so I'll just correct the record there a little bit before people from my, my family and background uh, have words with me. So I was born in Chicago, developed my Chicago sports loyalties young, but actually was raised in the New York area. And, and I was working in London, but not living there. So I was working in London, oh, okay. living, uh, commuting there for a TV job in, in London. So I was there periodically. And so um, I think it was a situation where the timing was right. I mean, I started traveling to London in 1998. Uh, you know, Arsene Wenger arrives on the scene. Arsenal start to play some really attractive football. There's an FA Cup final. And, and you know, suddenly you say, okay, this is an interesting sport. The passion is wild. You know, I went to a pub, watched a game, couldn't believe just the the culture of, of English football support. You, you know how appealing it is. You know that the sound that is rings around the stadium, the, the songs, the chanting, it... it Pulled me in right away as something that was different. And I think it's interesting, right? Because how you become a fan feels so divorced from what you grow into. Uh, what I mean by that is it felt arbitrary. At the time, I was like, yeah, I'll be an Arsenal supporter, right? It felt arbitrary. I went to a pub. They were on. They seemed like they had some interesting players and played some fun football. They had a, a rich history, so let's support them. But... It doesn't feel arbitrary anymore. It feels like I was born into it. it. Feels you know now twenty years, well ninety eight oh eight twenty what twenty three years later. It feels like yeah. it could never have been anything else. And I you know obviously I don't have the ability to say oh I grew up you know sitting in my dad's lap watching Arsenal play football and it was never going to be anything else. I'd love to say that there's some romantic reason for the connection. It is at some level arbitrary, um, but like anything that you do long enough and care about enough. It, it stops being arbitrary and feels very innate. So I wish I could romance it more than that. Um, but, you know, and this is, I think this is true for a lot of American supporters, and this is going to sound dumb, but like back then in 98, I couldn't watch the Premier League regularly. There was no easy way to do it. I could maybe catch a Champions League game on ESPN2. I could watch the World Cup, and I could play FIFA. And so if you liked a team that had players that were fun to use on FIFA, that became important. You know how many American AC Milan fans there were in the 90s because of how good and fun that team was to play on FIFA? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, that I, it sounds so dumb, but like being able to play those FIFA games with Thierry Henry and Pires and, and Vieira and Jumberg and Bergkamp, and, you know, it, it was just fun. And so again, the, this is not romantic and it may not be exciting, but the combination of watching those French players go win the World Cup and playing that game until I could finally start to watch the games regularly back in my home country, it kept me connected to the club. And so, again, feels a little arbitrary, feels less romantic than I'd like it to be, but the truth often is. No, I think it's great. And it feels like, obviously, Arsene Wenger is fundamental to that because, as you say, the football was fun. Um, that team, that 98 team was absolutely, I mean, it's one of my favourite non-Liverpool sides. I, I just I just sort of loved sort of all the old English guys at the back and then all the sexy foreigners at the front. I just thought there was something wonderful about it, that. They, it they makes were, me wonder, 
right? If I, if I had if I had been a few years earlier and been George Graham and one nil to the Arsenal, would I have picked someone else? Well, exactly <laughs> what I was going to exactly what I was going to ask. You had been if you'd come to London in '95, Bruce Riott would have been manager, and they weren't very mm. good. And under Graham, George Graham before that, they were okay but a bit dull. So um, yeah, so the time timing was absolutely fundamental to your. Mm. To your love of Arsenal there. I mean, did you did you get to make any trips to Highbury or have you been to the Emirates? Since no, I, I, I never did make it to Highbury and uh, I had a big trip planned for March of this past year. We were going to do some live events and connect oh, okay. with uh, Andrew Mangan who does Ars Blog and mm. we had a whole thing set up and I was so excited for it and uh, sure enough, it fell through. I will say that there are... Um, there are a lot of Americans that do make the pilgrimage over there annually who haven't been able to go obviously the last year and so I think everybody's looking forward to that return it is it is the one thing that I think you have to understand about American sports culture, though, is that we move around a lot, obviously. As you indicated, I was a, a Bulls fan. Uh, I was a Bears fan growing up, but I lived in New York. I didn't make pilgrimages to Chicago to go watch a game. There is, there's a very on-TV aspect to the culture of the United States sports fan because the country is very big and traveling to go follow your team is not particularly reasonable. Would I check out the Bulls when they were playing at Madison Square Garden and I lived in New York City? Sure. If I could get a ticket, if I could afford it. Yeah. But like, as a result for me, being at a remove from Arsenal and watching them on TV doesn't feel like I'm not connected to them because I think in America generally, and I know there are people that are season ticket holders and I here too, but there is more of an on TV culture here because the country is big and it's not like you can just go follow your team around. Mm -hmm. No, that's interesting. When I went to Dallas for that press trip, one thing that really struck me was in, in the hotel room, and I'd stick the TV on, the number of commercials that were about how to watch the NFL games. So the best yeah. lazy boy chair to sit on, <laughs> yeah. the best barbecue set to have while the game was on. I just, you know, a very different here. We're here, there's a kind of badge of honor about being able to go to games. And even though I live miles away from the team I support, it's actually relatively straightforward to go see them play. It takes well, I'll, I'll give you just real quick, I, and, and then I promise I'll, I'll stop talking. But like no, no, when I lived fine. in New York, I, I went to Yankees games a lot. I could not care less about baseball or the Yankees, but I could take the six train up to the Bronx, go to Yankee Stadium, have a bunch of beers in the sun and take the train home. And it was a yeah. lot of fun. You will find that some of the most passionate fans of teams in America actually don't go to the games and don't live there because they're transplants. They've moved away. Whereas a lot of the people who go to the games, it's just a fun day out, something yeah. to do in the sun in the spring, you know, something like that. So I think very different from football is that the American match going fan the person in the stadium isn't always even that particularly dedicated a supporter. It's more seen as a fun activity for a lot of people. Uh, Rob, let's come on to you. I am ludicrously, ludicrously even intrigued by how and why someone who lives in Oklahoma sports Everton. Um, <laughs> put it Me as, too. To put it as politely as possible, um, I was under the impression that it was only successful teams that transcended borders. So why yeah, are you supporting yeah. a team that hasn't won a trophy for 26 years? <laughs> I have to get that in. I'm well, sorry. <laughs> no, I, I expected full cop eye behavior. On this podcast, so um, no, I. So my. It's so funny that a lot of things Elliot was ticking off. I, there's some similarities and there's a lot of differences. I suppose. I mean, I, one place where I definitely agree is how arbitrary it felt at the time, but how depending on how you look back, you know, to the past uh, through a romantic lens and. I love doing that. Uh, I'm very, I love nostalgia, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. you know, you, you, you kind of look at these signs of these signs and these events and think, man, maybe this was sort of faded in a very born, not manufactured kind of way. If I can use a, you know, another, we both stuck Ever, up Everton this club cliche. Marketing <laughs> Second only to Solo Lo Mejor for uh, that giant picture of Roberto Martinez that was on Goodison <laughs> back in 2014. But mine was interesting. So, um, 
same same deal with the TV. I mean, I I had some vague knowledge of who Manchester United was. I'd heard of Arsenal mainly because I mean, Arsenal is such a cool name, and there's a giant gun on the emblem. <laughs> what could be more American than that? Oh <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I'm from Texas, so I mean, you know, of course. Uh, no, but but what was interesting was uh, I grew up a a fan of a lot of sports in Dallas, Dallas area, so I was a fan of all the Dallas sports teams but primarily like every texan i was i grew up loving american football and and i i went to a few cowboys games that the expense was the bigger barrier than the distance but um you know obviously the nfl built itself on uh, a television as as a cultural uh, mm-hmm. kind of staple of of how you consume the sport and part of that's different too because america is so big geographically and so you've everyone's really spread out you got a lot of transplants it's it's not always easy to go to, to games but for me, I also grew up a, a hockey fan. Uh, the Dallas Stars, that was one of my great sporting memories in my life. The Dallas Stars won the Stanley Cup on my birthday uh, in 2020. Uh, controversial Brett Hull goal that's, you know, still lives in infamy, but uh, that was a great moment. And uh, getting into the early 2000s, uh, the NHL went through a work stoppage. Uh, they, they, they had a, you can call it a strike or a lockout. I can't even totally remember the details of it, but I was working at a university here in Oklahoma City at the time called Oklahoma City University, and this part will be important to the story. Um, I had a, a, an office mate who was originally from Nigeria. He was He's a big Spurs fan, big into the Premier League. I sort of had this uh, gap of like not having this kind of spring winter sport. I wasn't big in the NBA at that point. And so I just, I didn't have hockey and he kind of encouraged me to get into the premier league. Now in the early two thousands, you could still maybe watch, I think they'd have like on Fox sports world back when that existed <laughs> uh, yep. one or two games a weekend. Of course it was always the same top at the time, big four teams that you expected to see. But um, I kind of went through the process of, of doing a Google search and reading stuff and just kind of throwing a dart at the wall and kind of landing on a team. And I, I started to read a little bit about Everton, a great history and all these sorts of things that I thought, well, they haven't been great in a while, but it would be so easy. I, I think there was part of me that was, was that kind of like a snobby record store guy who wants to, you know, who kind of rolls his eyes when you bring up the, uh, bring up the greatest hits collection. I, I probably was like, Oh, I, I don't want to be a United fan or an Arsenal fan or, you know, I, that's too easy. It's like at the time in the early two thousands being an Arsenal fan felt like such a cop out for me. Right. So I, I picked Everton uh, and I, I started to follow the way I would consume it was through web, you know, BBC content, websites, listening to audio streams, many of which were illegal, just trying to, to, to follow games. But it really got reinforced. And I sort of knew that this was fate. Uh, when I uh, heard the backstory of the, 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 I guess, soccer coach at Oklahoma City University, a man named Brian Harvey. Brian Harvey is a legend here in Oklahoma. He basically built uh, soccer in the state, built soccer. I hate the word soccer, by the way, but I'm using it in its That's context. Um, I'm, you know, he, <laughs> built, he built it in this state. Well, he's from Liverpool originally. Oh, okay. His brother is Colin Harvey, the oh, great wow. Colin Harvey. And so yeah, yeah. He, wow. when he found out, he found out through the grapevine, this relative small school I was working at that I'd started watching Everton and boy he wanted to talk and he told me about his he's like you know told me about his brother I didn't even realize that he told me his brother played for Everton I'm like oh that's that's interesting I didn't realize we're talking about one of the holy trinity here and like all this really important stuff but 
uh, I just sort of at that, you know, looking back on it now, years later, I feel like, man, this was sort of fate in, in some yeah. way. And and of course, I started following them in 0405, which was the Cinderella Champions League campaign of David Moyes and that team that had gone from, I think, 17th the year before and barely avoiding re- relegation to uh, a, a series of, you know, it was bringing in Mikel, Ar- you know, it was bringing in uh, like, God, it was the, with uh, you had Duncan Ferguson still on that team. You had you had Marcus Bent scoring goals and you had basically every game was one nil and I I got sucked into this kind of Cinderella story with Everton in that one season and got hooked and of course at the time thought man it's always going to be like this you know (laughs) and I didn't I didn't fully understand at the time what a an uphill battle consuming Everton would be from just a pure sporting standpoint you know Um, I've joked at times on my podcast that I wish that I could get the eternal sunshine for the spotless mind treatment and, and like forget about Everton sometimes. <laughs> but the thing about a thing about it now, 16, I guess now 17 years later, is that Everton is greater than the sum of its parts. And what I mean by that is that uh, if I was only in this for the enjoyment of winning trophies, clearly I would have left this a long time ago. But what happened to me over time was the sort of fluky building of relationships with people online, especially the advent of Twitter in the late 2000s. And I developed real relationships and friendships in Liverpool with people sort of randomly at first, and then eventually got asked to write a guest column for uh, the echo uh, by, by Greg O'Keefe, who I was, oh, wow. friends, you know, I'd gotten yeah. to know. And then, mm-hmm. and then I hooked up with Patty Boylan and Matt Jones. They asked me at some point, if, you know, and then in the Everton art website asked me if I wanted to write something. And it just sort of, it just sort of uh, mushroomed from there. And then suddenly I, I have these people who are online acquaintances. Now I've been over three times. I've uh, been to Goodison now three times. Uh, they, uh, and I even went to my first Premier League game, which was in a way at Bournemouth, which is quite an adventure. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the worst uh, hellhole of a place for everything <laughs> to go to expect anything good to happen. Uh, but, but man, I, I'm telling you, spending time going over there now and Dave Downey and I talk about this a lot and I know you know Dave the the being being a supporter of Everton is now about being part of a family more than it is about sports I I do I do talk about them I talk about my unabashed love of Yeri Mina and things like that but 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 ultimately it's that I'm a part of this family yes a tortured family yes a family full of misery but a family <laughs> nonetheless and so uh it, it's weird how I got into it but how I've stuck with it is is more amazing to me because it is about sport, but it's also not. And and so maybe that's how I felt more connected to the ups and downs emotionally of this kind of community-based feel of what a Super League or what other these other threats represent, because mm-hmm. I understand that it's more than just a quote team. Like in America, it's like I grew up in Dallas. Yeah, the Cowboys, they're 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 my team or whatever. But your club is very different than your team, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's a fundamental difference, and you don't really fully grasp that until you experience it with the people. People who are most connected to it and I'm grateful to be part of it I've developed relationships that will last for a lifetime I love those guys I love the people that I've met uh, even the weird strangers that I encounter on Twitter but those are but 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 the love of Everton and how great of a club they are from you know in terms of doing the right thing and humanitarian causes and all those sorts of things Everton is truly greater than the sum of its parts and that's why I'm I'm still here <laughs> excellent the Colin Harvey link really superb 
For anyone who doesn't know, Colin Harvey's a former Everton midfielder. As Rob referenced, part of the Holy Trinity, Everton's midfielder won the first division title in 1970 alongside Alan Ball and Howard Kendall, probably Everton's greatest ever midfield. And he later went on to manage the club as well. So yes, a huge figure in Everton's history. Elliot, I'll come back to you on this. I'm curious about kickoff times, obviously, with the, given the time difference. I mean, we're speaking at a six-hour time difference, the three of us now. Me, it's uh, coming up to quarter to six in, in London. You guys are sort of, what, knocking on near 12 o'clock, I think, near, near where you are. Mm-hmm. What are the yeah. what are the best and worst kickoff times from your point of view? Uh, the early ones in England, the late ones in England, which ones do you prefer? Which ones do you absolutely detest? Which ones make your life really, really tricky? Well, if you're just talking in terms of results, I feel like whenever we play the early kickoff on a Saturday, we lose. <laughs> so I prefer <laughs> not to do those. Uh, and, and then it ruins my entire weekend. There's nothing like waking up at 6 a.m. to watch Arsenal play on a Saturday and being miserable uh, for the next 48 hours. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you're just asking me purely like selfishly what I like, I like evening kickoffs, right? Like, give, me a, give me a 6 p.m., give me an 8 p.m. I mean, the Europa League sucks and I hate it and I don't want to be in it. But the kickoff times are pretty good. Uh, what I will say, though, is that you know, just from a purely podcasting and content creation standpoint, playing on Thursday is not great. <laughs> I'd rather be yeah, recording amen on to, Thursday. Amen to that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd rather be recording on a Thursday and, pu- and publishing on a Thursday than trying to record on a Friday morning and get it out Friday when you know everybody's already into their weekend and the, you know, the league fixtures are sort of on everybody's mind. So that's not super great. So if Arsenal could win the Europa League uh, and get into the Champions League, I would like that not for any other reason than just a, a content <laughs> scheduling standpoint. Nothing from not in terms of glory or competitive uh, prestige. No, I'm kidding. Like your life easy. Um, yeah, look, I'm I'm lucky. You know, the West Coast people have 4 a.m. kickoffs. We have uh, an event coming up in Vegas that's going to be uh, focused on the Premier League and. We don't know what the schedule will be for that, but I'm hoping it's not the early kickoff for Arsenal because that'll be a 4 a.m. kickoff and it's hard to throw a watch party at 4 a.m. I guess you just don't stop partying from the night before would be the best <laughs> It is best Vegas. Answer. I was going to say, if there's <laughs> yeah. anywhere to do it, it's Stay probably up. Vegas. <laughs> probably. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I guess the one upshot is I now have two small children. I have a five-year-old daughter and a 15-month-old, 16-month-old daughter. So the upshot to a 6 a.m. kickoff is I'm probably up anyway and I'm having the least... I'm creating the least uh, problems for my wife and for my family in terms of uh, disrupting the weekend. And during the week, it doesn't really matter because I work from home anyway as part of my my non-Arsenal-related career. So, yeah, I would say 6 a.m. kickoffs stink, but you know, my wife and daughters probably don't mind it so much. <laughs> what about you, Rob? Well, yeah, same six-hour difference. It's it's weird because ostensibly it would whenever there is a, I guess, a 5.30 kickoff over there or something like that, you know, so it's like or lunchtime. That that does seem sort of ideal. But oddly, over time, I've become a lot more like my 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 uh, my scouts friends who who actually prefer the three the kind of standard Saturday 3 p.m. kickoff, because for me, 9 a.m. is OK. Mm-hmm. I, I can 9 a.m. for me means that I have I get up because uh, I'm just I'm not I, I don't know. I'm, I'm 41 now. Maybe I just can't sleep late like I once did. I just don't have it in me. But I get up. Uh, I can get up around eight. I can see team news, uh, which I will probably have been looking scrolling the phone for rumors about that even before eight o'clock but i will uh you know get up around eight make some coffee make some breakfast sit down watch the game uh and and get the everton disappointment out of the way for the weekend <laughs> pretty early like even before lunchtime like 
by then, you know, I, I wrote a, it's funny. I wrote, the, I wrote this piece about uh, like, I, I think, I can't remember if we talked about this, but I, I host a, uh, I host a radio show here in Oklahoma city on Saturday nights. Uh, that's just, it's a music show focused on the eighties, nineties and two thousands called turn of the century. And, and so I have this big, I have this giant record collection and, and I wrote this article about here, the, here's the music I listen to, to cope with Everton disappointment on a Saturday, you know, like I, I, I kind of go through that, but I find that if I, I can get that out of the way by 11 i'll be mad for a, you know about an hour i'll eat lunch i'll take a nap or i'll go go work out or do something else and then by then i'm kind of I, I don't want to say over it some games you know how it is certain results will stick with you and believe me everton is everton has been they are at the top of the premier league for you know, Shakespearean tragic comedy uh, of the highest order when it comes to losing games late, like John Terry being way offside in the eighth additional minute of stoppage time when they only said there would be four. You know, like I, I've seen it all. A Bournemouth, you know, don't even get me started on Bournemouth <laughs> games. But those sorts of things, I, I find that if I can get that 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 done by about 11, I'm happy. So now I'm, I'm a bigger fan of the three, three o'clock local kickoff times. And that's the one thing with, with uh, COVID is because they've been staggering all the start times. You've had these weird like i think everton have played on three straight fridays or something like that and then you've got some days where they're starting at 2 p.m here which isn't that bad it's just that it's i know it's late there and it's just it's weird i'm kind of looking back looking forward to a return to normalcy next season oh me too i've actually hated this season not only because liverpool have shit completely shit the bed but also just the staggering <laughs> of games is just kind of it's the schedule has felt utterly relentless the noise has felt utterly relentless even if you're not watching the game you're hearing about the game can it can I say one thing about this season? I have hated it too because I kind of hate watching all the games without the fans and it's horrible. Mm. But I will say, because I'm going to take this unique opportunity to say this, I am on a podcast right now with fans of two teams that Everton have actually won the season series <laughs> with. So I'm, I'm actually yeah, as fluky as they probably all were. I don't even care. I'm pretty yeah. excited about like Richard, like that, that, that Leno goal the other day was just ridiculous. And I thought that Leno own goal. And I thought, mm-hmm. is that, are those the kind of weird things that always happen or are they the kind of things that are unique to this to the nature of a weird season with no fans and you know kind of the weird hollow echoey sounds of these stadiums like I just I imagine all the time when you take the fake crowd noise out what it must be like for those players to play in these empty stadiums but uh, as far as start times go I'm just ready for things including that and the fans to get back to normal because watching it this season has just been a weird surreal experience for sure yeah this season has proved that there can be too much football and yeah the kickoff times I mean, the Sunday night yeah. kickoff times are the devil's work. I absolutely yes. hate mm-hmm. it. I know Arsenal Agreed. have had a, you've had a, Elliot, you've had a, you got a string of them, didn't you? In that horrendous period when it was all going quite yeah. badly just before Christmas. Well, and we don't we don't play Saturdays because of Europa League. That's the other yeah. thing. So, like, Europa yeah. League not only adds Thursday in your schedule, but it takes Saturday off the table for large mm-hmm. swaths of the season, which kind of uh-huh. sucks. There's just something. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not patient. I don't like waiting to play. And I also think there's almost if if we ever actually competed for anything that mattered. I think it keeps more pressure on you when the other teams have played before you. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure, and then yeah. you have to play on Sunday mm-hmm. and go, you know, you're you're chasing those points with the game in hand. You know, start your weekend, go out, make a statement, win, and have everybody chasing mm-hmm. you. That's how you want to do it, you know? No, absolutely. I totally agree with that. I think, yeah, the, the pressure that you feel once, if everyone's had a good Saturday or a good Friday even, then it yeah really cranks it up. Um I think with you on this, Ellie. Actually, I'm curious. Do you? I mean, so it sounds like both of you are watching watching games on your own at home. Is there was there any? Is there any times you, you watch it in any sort of affiliated supporters bars? Is, is, is that something you like to do more often? Does it feel like quite an isolating experience for you? And do you perhaps prefer that? 
I, I've I've done the watch it bar thing. I mean, like I you know I'm old. I'm married. I have kids. I live in the suburbs. It's not really on the cards for me to be like, honey, I'm going to the pub at 8 a.m. on a Saturday. <laughs> um, so no, I'm not really doing that even when, when things were back to normal. I mean, I do miss though, like I'd set up trips to go out and see like my friend Tim Clark, who is a, a, an expat uh, from England who lives in New York City now. I'd you know, make a trip to go out there and my friends, you know, Dave, who's Scottish, would fly out there and we'd plan it around a couple exciting Arsenal fixtures and go to, you know, a, the Blind Pig or something, you know, in... in um, New York and, and gather at the pub and watch the games together, and make a whole trip out of it. I miss eventizing football as a reason I go visit friends or get together and do something. Like I've missed doing that. But my my weekly routine is largely isolated anyway, just because of my suburban married parent status, which, which mm. dictates a lot of my life at this time. Yeah, is that similar for you, Rob? Yeah, well, I, I'm married, don't have kids. Um, I. I mean, it's a minor miracle I've kept this marriage together when I'm making noise uh, at 6 a.m. or 9 a.m. on a Saturday for my wife who enjoys sleeping in. But um, yeah, I, I there's uh, so I live in Oklahoma City, which is kind of a big, small city, if that makes sense. Like it's a it's a major city, but it's like a small major city. Like and so, but but I'm I've been pleasantly surprised over the years with the growth of the supporter groups. Actually, funnily enough, the Arsenal uh, Oklahoma City group is probably the largest fan group here uh, when I go to the bars. I noticed that uh, yeah. Everton has a good supporters group. United has a good one as well um, here. Uh, I, I have gone to them before. I've, I I don't go nearly as much. Obviously, COVID was part of that too, but a lot of it was just uh, you know, I, I, I love, I love, I love, to, I love a good beer. I like to drink sometimes drinking. There's something about drinking. It's, you know, eight or nine in the morning. It doesn't always quite feel right to settle in, but, uh, uh, so I don't do that as much. Uh, and I, I end up oftentimes having post-match podcast studios for blue room. And so sometimes I want to just watch the game, take my notes, uh, and, uh, just get right up here to, you know, get all the, the angst out right mm -hmm. then, uh, as opposed to, to going at home. But, um, I have done like my brother lives in Pittsburgh. He's, he's an Everton supporter now because of me, which I feel really guilty about, <laughs> He goes to the Pittsburgh. He sometimes will go to the Pittsburgh Everton supporters group and they get together at a bar and watch. And it really can be a lot of fun. Um, I, I mean, nothing will match being there at them, being there at the match, but it is nice, especially when you're supporting a, a club like Everton who aren't going to have the most American fans anywhere you go uh, to have like kind of a tight knit group of people who are into the same thing that you mm. are. I do miss it a little bit. I am looking forward to having opportunities to go back and I certainly will do it. Uh, I just haven't obviously, been able to do it lately and 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 again it, it really just depends uh but it's certainly something that's more of a uh, every once in a while kind of a thing as opposed to a constant for sure but i know a lot of americans depending on where you live uh who do this every single weekend i mean the passion for the sport here uh it's it would surprise people over there i imagine uh and i think you know kind of like you asked how does an everton fan live in oklahoma like hey i don't know either a bunch of weirdos <laughs> right but those people, because they're weirdos, have this kind of really big passion for for the sport. Mm. Uh, and so those supporters group gatherings are, are a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I've had first-hand experience. So when I went to uh, first-hand experience off that, because when I went to San Francisco in 2019, I was there when the Community Shield was being played between City and Liverpool, Man City and Liverpool. And I went to a, 
the Kaiser pub in in, uh, in Cove Valley, I think it was, to to watch the, the community shield. It kicked off at three a uh, three p.m. in England, so I was there for a seven a.m. kickoff because of the time difference and drinking beer at seven a.m. when you're half awake <laughs> is uh, the best. Is the is the is <laughs> like the always weird, is the weirdest good. is the weirdest. But it was lovely <laughs> because, as you say, there was there was people there. I spoke to a few people. I wrote an article on it actually, and people for them that is their that is their community, that is their family, that is their football sport family. They go there every week to watch every Liverpool game, and, and there's sixty affiliated sports groups right across North America which are very similar who have that sort of bar links to the sports group and those people meet there regularly and I'm sure it's the same for all other clubs as well and it's, it's, it's really know, lovely I think I just want to add something and maybe this is a little more political than you wanted to get but like I think one of the unfortunate realities of Premier League support in the US you know there is a very strong working class cultural connection to football in England and I don't say that from you know obviously personal knowledge but just mm. from reading from speaking to friends from understanding and that that the soul of that the game is very connected to that. Maybe it's getting ripped out in ways by the cost of um, tickets, the cost of subscriptions to things like Sky. But in the U.S., I think unfortunately, it's not as friendly to the working class that it is that there are barriers to entry, um, and that it it is a sport that is more accessible to you know a, a class of people that are more privileged. And that changes the way American support is formed. And the reason I say that is think about it: the games midweek are in the middle of the day. The working person can't consume that game, but mm. people who have the luxury of working from home or flexible schedules or I'll have it on in the office, my boss doesn't care. Mm-hmm. That's you know that's not your average blue-collar person. You need seven different streaming services to follow your team here. That's not the average blue-collar person either. And so I just think it, it is a little unfortunate because it is a game that has so much connection to sort of blue-collar working-class families and communities in England. Mm-hmm. And... Unfortunately, in America, I think the the accessibility to that community, and I, I hope this doesn't come across in any way as patronizing or culturally insensitive or or tone deaf. It's just simply the fact that when I, you know, travel and go to pubs and see the people are supporting, you know, it's it's hipsters, it's it's privileged communities, and it's there, you know, not that there's anything bad about those people or anything wrong with that, but it is. It would be great if the sport got big enough that it was accessible here in ways that were a little more cost effective. And I, look, there's nothing you can do about the fact that. 2 p.m. on a Thursday isn't going to work for somebody who has to work a shift that day. I mean, there could be a lot of first shift workers who do get to enjoy football because they're working in the overnights. But I, but I definitely think it is, it is interesting to sort of track the difference. Now, look, there's also a, a huge Latinx community in America that are much more connected culturally to football. Immigrants that have come here and brought that culture, I don't know if you know that, that maybe changes the dynamics of it, but it'd be interesting to see just demographically how football evolves in America as it becomes increasingly popular. Because if you look at certain American sports, like football in England, you do see a broader demographic reach and they reach into communities that are less privileged. And it'd be great if football could catch on here in that way. And I think it would also, what it would benefit is it would benefit our talent development as a country Mm. and being more of a footballing nation. Because, you know, not to get into this, but the way you become a star at football in America is you pay for these soccer clubs and travel teams. And it's it's a money-spinning, money-making exercise in America that shuts out a lot of communities as well. So it'd be interesting to see how the soul of the game changes, if it can change, and if it can reach into those communities, both for the benefit of fandom, but for the benefit of developing talent in the sport in this country. 
Um, I, I certainly can. I, I certainly think there's a lot to what Elliot says. I mean, I, I can speak as, <laughs> I, you know, you think it's weird being uh, from Oklahoma and supporting Everton, uh, you know, try being a Latino. Uh, you know, I'm a Puerto Rican who supports uh, a, a club based somewhere I've never, I'm not from <laughs> yeah. uh, if supporting a sport that's six hours different. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of kind of weird symmetry there. And, 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 and I would say that, you know, I grew up in the tech in, in Texas and, most of the, you know, whether it was certain members of my family, though, Puerto Ricans are more generally if it's if they're into sports, it's generally going to be more baseball, football, boxing, that kind of thing. But um, in, in a lot of those communities, uh, especially in Texas, the support of Latino communities has largely been for, uh, you know, Mexican uh, Mexican uh, Super League or, you know, to uh, for as it's kind of escalating a little bit more, some of the local clubs there uh, in Texas. So, you know, the MLS has a decent following there the Latino community, but even that, uh, even the MLS has had did the thing where they found a way to in Dallas, for instance, to to create a club, FC Dallas, uh, in a hot hot a Latino hotbed of interest and put it out in the widest suburb that they possibly could. <laughs> and it alienates the fans. But you know, getting getting certain communities. I mean, look, I, I'll go ahead and say it because you know I know Elliot, you want to be careful in saying it, but yes, mm -hmm. uh, the Premier League uh, is a largely white, uh, affluent fan base here in, in America. Um, that has that that is probably more at this point it's just a it's a byproduct of a lot of factors that that go that are probably not going to be solved on this podcast or solved very easily certainly but um i think that the impact of that the impact of how not only we consume the sport uh to the point about i was going to make a joke about how you only have to have one streaming subscription if you're following a club that doesn't make europe like me but uh you know you you do have to subscribe a lot you have to pay extra money and do these things you get a lot of access but yeah there's their financial barriers the time etc but but the impact of having a fan base an emerging fan base in america which i think is overall a very good thing for the premier league and for for, for european football and, and i think the premier league obviously being broadcast in english gives it a tremendous advantage and gives it a lot of things that would give it more international appeal especially here in america but having an American fan base that is so white has huge impacts on not only the way that the sport is consumed, but the way the sport is talked about, frankly, the way that the way, and, and frankly, I, I think that, that, that the way that you consume this particular sport culturally really does vary. Even I even have to get on my, my friends in Liverpool an, a predominantly white city uh, that with a predominantly white fan base who at times don't realize how they sound when they talk about, players from Colombia or mm. the South American stereotypes yeah. of players or the way that they don't think about it because to them it's all very you know they, they have the privilege the quote privilege or the unique circumstance of living in a kind of monolith you know semi-monolithic kind of cultural makeup but uh in america it's a very diverse country but to to that point the fan base here for the premier league is one based in privilege and therefore is largely white and and so the the way in which and and i imagine that the super league owners probably would make some faux argument about the idea that well you know to you know to really get americans into this we got to make it something that they can relate to well, what can they relate to they can relate to an to an nfl or a sport here that's popular for these structural reasons but i do 
do think it misses the point. And I do think that there probably are some limitations to what the appeal of the Premier League can be to certain communities in America, just because of those financial obstacles, just because of those cultural obstacles, just because of, frankly, the fact that when I watch the Premier League here, um, outside of the NBC crew, who is still largely made up of English people like Arlo White, for instance, or, or Lee Dixon or, you know, whomever. Lovely I'm Dixon won't have a bad word said. No, no, Lee Dixon's <laughs> fine. But what I have, what I do, but I, what I am largely watching for the most part is sport that is commentated on, broadcast by, and run by white white English people. And so why would that be appealing to me? Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it is appealing to me because I'm, I'm into this sport for reasons that I, again, still don't totally understand. But the, the idea is that trying to expand that base is going to require probably, I think, a, a rethink, uh, more commitment to diversity on a lot of levels, but 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 there probably are some artificial barriers in terms of the time zone and, and the cost mm-hmm. associated with how do you consume the Premier League that will always be there. Um, but you can, I think the Premier League will make strides here incrementally as they have, but it's just going to take time. It really is. Yeah. And I just, just want to put one final super yeah, quick thought no, no, on it. I want to be clear. I'm not trying to be a culture warrior. I'm not trying to like, you know, overthink uh, an aspect to this that you know may may just be accidental. My my perspective because I I can't speak to this from any position other than the lens I view it through is simply that it is expensive to consume the Premier League here, yep. and the timing of when it happens is limiting. And so. You know, I, I'm not. I just want to make it clear that I'm not trying to impute to anybody a nefarious intention that that there is an in, intention to exclude sure. or an mm. intention mm. to to create that. And maybe there is, maybe there isn't. I just no, want to be clear true. that I'm not. I'm saying that it is a byproduct of circumstance in some ways. If other people feel that there is more intentionality behind that, it's an interesting conversation to have. But I, I just want to make sure that I'm not. I'm not stating it as intentional, but more a byproduct of circumstance in terms of timing and and expense. Yeah. The one thing, other thing I'll add to that point too, is that the fact that the Premier League has gotten as popular as it is in America in some ways is kind of a miracle if you understand America in that we are very centered in sport or big, important events around Mm -hmm. sport being an American thing. It's, it's, the big, the best baseball league in the world is in America. The best football league, and the only real football league is here in America, the NFL. Right? Like that's how we sort of think, and therefore, the 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 idea that a foreign league, even if it's England, you know, which is you know, like we're we're we have a lot in common, but uh, there's there's we also really don't have that as much in common as we sometimes <laughs> think, but. Um, I would say that that the fact that a, a sport that is that is in another country, uh, based in clubs that are in cities that we couldn't point out on a map, is probably a minor miracle. Like if I want to look yeah, at this class yeah. as well, it's a minor miracle. It's as yeah. popular as it is, but those things will always be some obstacles combined with the fact that, uh, and 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 I could talk about this for 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 days and days and days. When we think of a sport here, I think of the NBA, I think of the NFL, I think of these things. When I think of when people hear Premier League, they they may they may think of soccer, but fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your point of view, in America, the way NBC markets NBC Sports and and whomever takes over the rights eventually after that, they market the sport as six clubs and these 14 other anonymous ones that they happen to play every week. Mm-hmm. And as yeah, long as true. that's the case, as long as they are treated, that they're treated as these kind of unique kind of uh, uh, identities in, in this sort of siloed manner. Um, I think that it, it, it 
creates a bit of brand confusion at times because there is, you know, as much as I understand now the, the football pyramid, I understand how the different leagues work and champions league and all that kind of stuff. It is a, it is a, it is a daunting proposition, sort of like teaching someone English, you know, that it's, yeah, yeah. Cr- it's a crazy language teaching someone how the football pyramid works and that there are, <laughs> that, that there are these, you know, how many, like in America, it's like, it's amazing that there are two major foot, uh, two major baseball teams in New York, two major baseball teams in Chicago. There's what nine in London, or you know, however many <laughs> that there are every year. Yeah. Like, how does that make sense? People don't fully grasp it, and so there's just a lot of there's a knowledge gap there, and I get why it's daunting because the access to it is not great. The geography is foreign to people, so I think it's just one of those things that will become effective the more exposure it gets overall because the sport is compelling enough on its own and therefore will generate people yeah. to get interested in it but it does have some very unique challenges undoubtedly yeah i think elliot you, you spoke about this in a recent episode of arsenal region of trying to explain to an american person coming new to football how it'll just sort of blow their mind that you play a premier league game on a saturday and then you play a europa league game on a thursday and it's a completely different competition and then also at times in the season you'll play two other completely different cup competitions and it's yeah as, as rob's saying there it's culturally just so very different to what you're used to in the states Attracting new fans, which we don't care about. Why do I care about attracting new fans? But the sport has to. It is easier in a world where we have Netflix and YouTube and TikTok and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Xbox and PlayStation and Twitch to have one thing that is Mm. European football. And all you have to do to be a fan of European football is like that one thing. And what we can promise you about that one thing is you'll be watching the best players, playing the biggest league with the most important stakes. That's how you package a thing for a new fan. The problem is football, talk about a miracle that it ever succeeded. It's a miracle it ever brings in a new fan because you have the Premier League. But if you're bad enough in it, you'll play in the championship. And if you're bad enough in that, you'll play in League One. Now, you do play in the FA Cup, but you also play in the League Cup. Now, you could be in the Champions League, but you could be in the Europa League, but you could be in the Europa Conference. And some play on Tuesday, Wednesday, and some play on Thursday. There's occasionally a league game on Friday and Monday, but mostly they're Saturday and Sunday, unless you're in the FA Cup or in the Carabao Cup, which is a totally different cup. Like, as a new fan, I would say to you, here's what I would say. Which is the thing I have to watch that's most important? Which is the thing I have to watch that has the best teams in it? Then you'd say, the Premier League. Well, but also the Champions League. But sometimes those teams don't make it, so watch the Europa League. And and the FA Cup has this tradition. And again, as a new fan, I'm saying, I'm not ready to invest that time and energy. It's too confusing. I'm out. And you can understand why owners would say, if we can get the best teams Mm -hmm. and the biggest competition in one thing and say, this is the thing you have to watch, we can sell it to brands, we can sell it to broadcasters, we can sell it to new fans. And they are right about that. But they are so wrong about what we want, which is this confusing, complex, rich, sophisticated tapestry of European football that you have to earn the right to understand, that you have to put in the time and energy to get to feel like it's you. And the fact that I know what the League Cup is, and I know what the FA Cup is, and I know how you qualify for Europa because you win the FA Cup, unless the FA Cup winner qualified for the Champions League, in which case you can get in in your sixth. You know what? Knowing that is a proud thing, and it makes you feel more connected to it. So while football is harder to access, there's more friction to acquire a fan, it is more sticky because you feel you've earned that connection. And these these billionaires don't understand earned connection. They only understand easy money, easy connection, uh, fungible customers, 
we are not fungible customers. And that is partly because of the complexity and the sophistication of the football tapestry. And I quite clearly love it. <laughs> well, and this goes back to the entire notion of, we, I view this through an American lens, grew up in a very capitalistic society where if you're not, you hear the, there's a phrase, if you're not growing, you're dying. And I don't know that that's actually true, but boy, it's like a religion here. And so therefore, I think a lot of times the lens of, well, the reason you have this momentum at times behind the quote, what I call the ugly American bastardization of, of foreign things is that, <laughs> that we feel like, well, I've got to create a, uh, I've got to create a sustainable business model that, that has a projected growth of this, this, and this every season. Now, that is not to say that, that the Premier League certainly couldn't adopt things that I think would help it run as a more efficient business. Again, it's a league in name only because it's really 20 independent contractors at any given time who are out for themselves. And that's just the way it is. They, there's not a, the fact that you had, the fact that you have a league where you have like six, like if you try to explain to an American casual American fan, this whole super league debacle, try, try and imagine explaining to them how like uh, you were in a business, uh, you were in a, you were involved in a company and there were 20 shareholders and six of them went behind the other 14s back and tried to, you know, steal money from them and go out. And, 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 and people would think that's, that's not a sport. That's, that's the, co that's the Cosa Nostra. That's the mafia. I, I, it is, it is insane that you have to kind of understand these nuances and all the different, uh, different equations of, you know, if this team wins this, then, then you know, all of that. But I do agree that it is stickier. It is an earned understanding of the sport. We have to be careful not to be so proud of that, that we're snobbish and we don't enable new fans to truly get into this sport. But what I would say is that as American consumers of the sport, sometimes it's okay for us to look at something like this and say, you know, we need to come to the Premier League. We need to come to European football as opposed to it coming to us. Mm -hmm. We're so accustomed to the privilege as Americans of everything sort of coming to us and international broadcast times and the Olympics and everything kind of catered towards an American audience half the time um, and the way we consume it through an elitist lens. One of the things that I decided years, I, I, I don't even know if I consciously decided it, but it just sort of has been the way I've operated is that whether it's in the language that I use, uh, I, I mean, I say, for instance, in on the podcast, I'm very much an American. There's certain English words that are fucking ridiculous. I'm sorry. But what I do respect is the sport. I respect the way that the terms of the game, it's football. It's not, you know, soccer is an American or an Australian. Yeah. I just, I can't, I can't say it without making a fart face. You know, it's terrible. <laughs> but what I do understand that is that part of the richness of this experience for me has been that I have had to learn about this sport and this culture on its terms as opposed to mine. And therefore, it's been a more enriching and beautiful experience. Because if I just came over and everything was about, well, why can't this be more like America? Again, I know I've said, you've heard my, my podcast before, I know I've said there are some things about mm. how American leagues are run, cut and paste, but certain things that, yes, I would love to adopt. But in general, the reason the pyramid, the reason that the nuance, the reason that all of these kind of cultural touchstones of, of how the Premier League clubs are set up and their historical roots and the familial connection, all this stuff matters is because I have learned to understand it on its terms as opposed to my own. And that's something I'm grateful for. And that's something that makes the discussion about what does growth potential 
internationally for a sport like this look like? It makes it a complicated discussion because it requires potential consumers to check their privilege a little bit and understand that maybe they have to kind of learn something as opposed to that sport catering specifically to them. You guys have been absolutely fantastic. It's been really, really interesting. Uh, great discussion. Before I let you both go, I've got the usual final question I want to put to you both, the usual final question for this podcast. So um, Rob, I'll stick with you for this one. If you go back in time and alter one aspect of your time supporting Everton up to now, it could be absolutely anything. It could be a result. It could be a match. It could be a transfer. It could be a, a way you've personally consumed Everton. What would you choose? Oh, my God. I mean, there... If it was a result, it would be like the 09 FA Cup final where mm. we went up 1-0 like a minute into the game. Yeah, <laughs> and then, of course, you got just... an FA Cup final, I think. Yeah. And yeah. by the way, there should be no there should be no truth to the idea that you can, quote, score too early. But yet, if you're an Everton fan, <laughs> you understand that, yes, scientifically yeah. speaking, you can score too early. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mentioned this. I think I referenced this to you on Twitter, but I will tell you, and I don't have time for the full story, but I never wanted a transfer to happen as badly as I wanted Andre Yarmolenko to end up at Everton for reasons that make zero sense. He's basically a, he's a reserve now for West Ham. I was going to say, is he still at he's, West Ham? He's, he's, I think he's, he's he, he is. He's had still some injuries there, yeah. here yeah, and there, yeah. but he represented, you have to understand this is pre-Mashiri. He represented, there was something about him and how good I perceived him to be and how the, the 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 hype around him built that there was some, you know roberto martinez was at the club at the time and we just thought you know if we could just have a real wing player and then it became it went from being the qualities of the player to being this super argument about what is the future of football in everton if we don't get this done and i was obsessed to the point and it's unhealthy it's illogical it's all those things that uh, advanced metrics cannot explain uh but it is it is one of those things where because of the time difference and i think elliot you may be able to relate to this to some degree mm. transfer season is is one of my favorite times of the year because of how <laughs> absurd and ridiculous it is but with the time difference there are times where and i'm a light sleeper sometimes i'll wake up in the middle of the night i'm over 40 i go to the, go to the bathroom you know, in the middle of the night sometimes. I'm going to check to see if, 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 if my Paul Joyce alert has gone off and, and there's been a signing at 3 a.m. my time, and it's only like nine over there. And I think, oh, yeah, sure. But dude, you get it, you go down these rabbit holes and you start following Twitter accounts that you know in your brain have no inside knowledge of any of this stuff. And by the way, we didn't even talk about the differences as American consumers in terms of interpreting what is reliable and unreliable information in the sporting mm -hmm. media. That's a whole other conversation, but man, that was the biggest obsession. I wanted that to work. I'm not, I, I don't know that in hindsight it would have ever made any difference, but I remember that's the most I've ever, ever wanted anything for Everton for reasons that make no sense, because I think I've always perceived Everton as always missing out on that. What, you know, they're, if they just can get this one player, this one thing, then things will finally work out, which I'll probably be saying for the rest of my life, but that's all part of the experience. You could easily sign Yarmolenko now. I think West Ham was oh, selling totally. for a couple of million. Probably get him on a free at some point. Soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, all my dreams would come true. Yeah, exactly. Get my Yarmolenko jersey next to my <laughs> Yerry Mina Columbia jersey in the closet. It would be great. It would be great. Absolutely. Yeah, Elliot, same question to you. If you could go back in time and alter one aspect of your time playing Arsenal up to now, it can be absolutely anything. What would you choose? I mean... I would, I would change the outcome in Paris in 2006. Yeah. I mean, that, that's pretty easy, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's the single biggest heartbreaking moment for me. I mean, I, you could probably put the Wayne Bridge goal in 2004 up there because I, remember that. I, I think the Invincibles probably go on and win the Champions League, mm -hmm. assuming they don't get knocked out then. And so, but 
that presumes other results. 2006, you're there. You're leading. You've, you've got Thierry Henry with a, a really good chance to make it too. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things I'd change about that game specifically. But yeah, I, I that's 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 the game. That's it. There There is no other answer. There's no yeah. other answer. So that's the one. I think that's the one for Arsenal fans. And that was one of the things that would have been so terrible from your point of view, from an Arsenal fan point of view of the Super League, is that you'd never get the chance to win a Champions League, I guess. And, and oh, oh I, I want to assure you something. We have no chance of ever. <laughs> as, as long as Stan Kroenke's in charge, uh, you know, if we get back into the Champions League, that'd be a start. Let's win the Europa League and see what happens. Step by step, yeah. Now keep hoping. Yeah, keep I, I would. I would be happy getting into the conference this year. We <laughs> yeah, you the, can have it. You can have Everton, it. Everton, we call it the Farmers League. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Um, but, get your you know, hoe and get into the Farmers hey, League. Be my no, guest. We still, we still have an outside chance at, uh, at UEFA or even the Champions League if some things go our way, but they they probably won't. But yeah. that's that's just the. The way it is. <laughs> Absolutely. And Liverpool have zero chance of being in Champions League next year, which is brilliant. Absolutely delighted. What a season it's been. Um, Rob and Elliot, you've been absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thank Bye. you.